0: listening to beyond the jargon a jargon free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at the University of Victoria. Beyond the Jargon, I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur. Joining me in the studio is Neil Valence, who's completing his PhD in law here at the University of Victoria. Thank you for joining me today.
1: You're very welcome.
0: PhD in law can mean a lot of things. What does it mean for you? What is the focus of your uh, degree?
1: They have a program, uh, Law and Society, so that it's not black letter law. I'm not learning the finer points of evidence or criminal law.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I'm studying uh, legal history, specifically colonial legal history. Uh, and my area of interest is to do with uh, historical treaties uh, between First Nations and the Crown, Uh, especially the the local treaties made with First Nations and a guy called James Douglas back in the 1850s.
0: Why are you particularly drawn to this? How did you start uh, researching this?
1: Well, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, get some work for specific claims branch of Indian Affairs back in 1999 and one of the first tasks I was assigned was a claim by the uh, Nanaimo Band of Indians or the Sunaymukh First Nation. Uh, They had made a claim to Indian Affairs for compensation for the uh, breach of some rights they claimed under their Douglas Treaty. And uh, I was given the task of doing the historical research on that claim, and that's where I first came across the Douglas Treaties. I must confess, in spite of being a native Victorian, I had never heard of them hmm. until that point.
0: Hmm. So you've had a you've worked as a lawyer previous to doing your PhD here. Can you give us an idea of some of your experience before you started uh, this degree?
1: Sure. I mean, my connection with UVic starts 49 years ago. I was a frosh in 1965. Wow. And I ended up getting a a B.A. in anthropology in 1969. Uh, Sadly, I uh, lost my way and ended up at law school, (laughs) because my mother wanted me to be a lawyer, I think. And uh, so that I uh, went to UBC law school. There was no UVic law school at the time. Hmm. Got a law degree. Didn't really intend to practice law, but a friend talked me into it, and uh, we hung out our shingle in 1976 out in Colwood, a firm called Dinning and Valence, uh, Still going all these years later. It's now called Dinning Hunter. Mm-hmm. But um, so I practiced law out there as a suburban solicitor, uh, doing the normal things for families, their wills, uh, house purchases. Uh, Mortgages, handling the estates, doing a bit of commercial work and land development work—all pretty ordinary stuff. The one thing I didn't do is I didn't go to court, mm-hmm. and nor did I have anything to do with uh, the area of Aboriginal law. So that, um, but I brought up a family. Uh, never really felt totally at home as a lawyer, and uh, by 1998, I was uh, looking for other. Challenges, and I uh, decided that I needed to go see if I can get into grad school and do a master's in anthropology. And I applied, and uh, after a a year of um, undergrad courses to make sure I had enough gray cells to do it, I was admitted into the master's program here at Uvic, and uh, had a great time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was. uh, during that time that I started doing the contract work, uh, doing ethnohistorical research on First Nations land claims, Mm -hmm. started out just working uh, with the specific claims branch, but later on working for First Nations and their their lawyers, uh, doing the research and putting out the reports so that hopefully the parties could come to some uh, uh, negotiated settlement of of the claim. Mm. So that, I uh, must confess I continued to practice law part-time uh, after graduating with my master's in anthropology. I still needed to uh, to earn a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I split my time between doing these research contracts and uh, practicing law and then got tired of that and decided I needed a fresh challenge. So I retired from practicing law for the second time in 2010 and uh, I'd been so intrigued with the Douglas Treaties during my years of researching claims that I decided that uh, maybe I should become the expert <laughs> and uh, was fortunate enough to be admitted to the the, the program. Uh, actually, the sort of reigning expert on the subject is a prof there called Hamar Foster, uh, absolutely the best person possible to be my uh, supervisor. And uh, then I have a co-supervisor outside of law in history, uh, Dr. John Lutz, who's also very knowledgeable. So I kind of have a dream team, (laughs) and it's been great fun.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you have an outside supervisor who is in history. Uh, what would the, why are you specifically in the law department studying the history of this rather than in the history department? Is it based on your previous experience as a lawyer, or is it to do specifically with what you're researching?
1: I think that it's, um, legal history is uh, uh, quite different from straight-up history mm-hmm. uh, in that uh, it's partly to do with the history of law, And uh, so that it requires, I think, a knowledge of the law that is not present in the kind of training you get within a history department. Um, I'm not a trained historian, though, so that's, I think, why I have a historian, Mm -hmm. to help me with the historiography aspect of things. Um, So that it's the whole law and society program is intended to be interdisciplinary, and that's why you always have to have an outside supervisor. And uh, mine is, has a deeply historical bent to it, so it was appropriate for John to, to be that person.
0: Hmm. Let's talk a bit about what you're looking at with the Douglas Treaties. Um, they are something that has, I think, caused confusion f- with when it comes to present-day land disputes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, with them specifically, are you looking at the wording of the documents? Are you looking at like long-term implications to the present day? How how are you approaching this and what are you studying?
1: The starting point traditionally has been the, the written documents. There's 14 of them, basically one page each, virtually identical. And uh, they um, are interesting, but that's not the focus of my uh, research, In fact, I'm sort of uh, problematizing the written versions, pointing out all sorts of uh, uh, difficulties uh, that they don't necessarily represent the agreement of the parties at the time. So that uh, one of the epiphanies I've had was uh, realizing that there are accounts in the archival record of First Nations participants Attempting to explain to white audiences their understanding of what was agreed at those meetings. Mm. Uh, I think what I'm doing uh, that's unique is taking them seriously and proposing them as an equal alternate narrative as to what happened at the treaty meetings. And if you start, as I do, from the First Nations perspective, you end up at a very different understanding of what the treaties. Are all about
0: mm-hmm. um, the First Nations accounts of what happened surrounding the treaties. Are they um, were they oral uh, accounts that were then written down by someone? And how did you how do you find them or where are they <laughs> recorded? Basically,
1: um, well, they're they're interesting. There's four accounts given by three people, and uh, they are uh, one of them. The oldest one was a testimony given by a. a A Nanaimo elder by the name of Dick Wocum. Uh, He was able to tell his story in 1913 when something called the Royal Commission on Indian Affairs toured around the province asking uh, First Nations people uh, about their reserves and whether there was enough land or whether there was too much land and uh, Mm. they could be made even smaller. Mm. And so that uh, certainly the commissioners did not want the uh, band members to talk about treaties. They were to talk about other things, but Dick Wolcom was having none of that. He basically brought them up and uh, uh, a very interesting conversation took place where he basically said that, uh, yes, they entered into a treaty with uh, uh, James Douglas, but that they did not agree to sell their land, that the nature of the agreement was to uh, regularize the uh, arrangements that were already in existence for a coal mine that the Hudson's Bay Company was operating there to you know, establish royalties. That was his understanding mm. of what happened. Uh, so that record is sitting mm. around, and uh, in the archival record, it's known, but nobody's really taken it off and dusted it off and mm. uh, analyzed it. So, and then the, uh, the other one uh, to do with Nanaimo, uh, an elderly couple, Joe and Jenny Wise, who uh, gave an interview to a journalist, Burl Cryer, in 1934, and an article appeared in the uh, the Daily Colonist. Um, and she was interviewing them about their recollections of early days. And uh, Dick Wacombe was the son of the chief who was uh, representing his people at the meeting with James Douglas in 1854. Uh, Joe was maybe 12 or 13 at the time, but remembers well what went on. And uh, so his version, again, is uh, that uh, it was more of a financial transaction, uh, you know, an agreement to share the land and, and the resources, but not to give them over for a few blankets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the last one was another uh, interview, a journalist uh, for the Daily Colonist, interviewed a, a man by the name of Chief David Latas from the uh, Tzawat uh, Reserve out on Saanich Peninsula, and uh, a very interesting uh, newspaper article containing his very sophisticated uh, understanding of what was transacted mm-hmm. uh, uh, for the Saanich Treaties, uh, again saying that uh you know, his recollection was that uh, a mutual understanding was arrived at to work together to allocate land and to make arrangements for the uh, Europeans to have uh, what they needed for farming, uh, but also to make sure that the the wants of the First Nation was taken care of. Mm. So that's, that's what they are. There's also, David Latas has an account of the earlier earliest of the treaties in 1850 with the Songhees, in, you know, greater Victoria mm. area, uh, and uh, that's very interesting as well. There's some problems of accuracy, but then uh, <laughs> in 1934 David Latas claimed to be 106 years old, so that uh, whether he really has uh, uh, memories as a young adult or whether I think more likely he was uh, again around 11 or 12 at the time and was with his father mm. uh, during the negotiations, but... Uh, for me, the important thing is the uh, amazing insight uh, he shows into the the arrangements that uh, he understood to be made and how it was going to work.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and then, just so that we can contrast this to the understand, I guess maybe a more a mainstream understanding of the Douglas Treaties, mm-hmm. is that the First Nations were given a document from. James Douglas, and asked to sign, and then that was understood as selling their land. Is that right?
1: Um, In the normal course of treaties with uh, Indigenous peoples, that's correct. Uh, Things were a little backwards in Victoria Mm -hmm. in that there was no document in existence. They weren't presented with anything a meeting took place. A list was made of the names of the participants and X's were put beside their their name by a Hudson's Bay clerk. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the text was added later. Uh, Douglas, after arranging this first set of meetings in 1850, wrote to his uh, superiors uh, in the Hudson's Bay Company uh, to say that, uh, you know, I've had this meeting, but uh, can you please send me a, a form that I can use uh, and attach it to the signatures? And the form that was sent out from London uh, basically says that the uh, the tribe is uh, ceding, uh, surrendering, and, and giving up any claim it might have to the, the land described, and there is a very rough description of the territory covered, um, and that... Uh, the uh, First Nations were to uh, have their village sites and enclosed fields, whatever that meant, uh, retained for their use, and that they would have the uh, liberty to continue their fisheries as formerly and to hunt over the unoccupied land. Hmm. So that it was basically a, a surrender of any interest in the land plus a promise uh, by... Uh, the Hudson's Bay Company that was acting as agent for the Crown uh, at this point, that certain uh, activities uh, would be protected uh, for a while at any rate. Mm. So that was the, these documents then were taken to be the, the treaties for a long time, and it's only recently that the, their accuracy has been questioned, and the, uh, especially since the document was supplied months after the meetings and was never shown, to my knowledge, to the First Nation participants.
0: How many Douglas treaties are there, and do they cover the entire province or just uh, Vancouver Island and then uh, parts of the province?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a good question. um, At the time, there was no colony of British Columbia. Mm. Uh, It was still part of the Oregon Territory. Uh, and Vancouver Island had been set up as a separate colony in 1849 by the British uh, to, I think, uh, make sure that the Americans didn't uh, percolate north of the 49th parallel, which had just been established as the boundary, uh, and uh, so that they uh, subcontracted that work to the Hudson's Bay Company, which already had some presence on the island, so that the, uh, when one of his first uh, jobs, uh, Mr. Douglas, was to um, enter into agreements to uh, clear away any interest in the, the land that the First Nations might have in order to open that land up for settlement, because that was the key goal, was to get some settlers on the ground to establish sovereignty and so on and so forth. So that there, the treaties um, really only cover greater Victoria, so that's the city of Victoria, and the Squire Malt and Souk, and Saanich Peninsula, um, Beecher Bay, you know, sort of uh, that area there, um, and then up at Nanaimo, so that the land in between, that's Cowichan and Shamanis, is not covered by a treaty. Hmm. Uh, they wanted to um, negotiate one, but it never quite happened. So there was the one up in Nanaimo, which was entered into because of the coal mine. They wanted to make sure that, uh, that uh, is to say the uh, colonial types wanted to make sure they got the mineral rights. Mm. Uh, And then there was one more up, uh, what was called Fort Rupert, which is Port Hardy, Uh, These days, uh, again, uh, they entered into that one because there was some coal mining there and they wanted to make sure that they got the the mineral rights away from the First Nations. Mm. Uh, So that's the extent of it. It's only about uh, 3 or 4% of the area of the island, and there's none of them, no treaties uh, were ever entered into uh, on the colony of British Columbia when it was established in 1858. Uh, Douglas and... uh, the colonial government decided between them that there was no need for any more treaties then they just stopped.
0: But continued to settle?
1: Oh, Indeed. Uh, they felt they had the uh, legal authority to place uh, First Nations onto reserves without the necessity of the nuisance of entering into any kind of formal agreements with them. They realized they could get away with it.
0: Wow. How does this differ from the rest of Canada and the way that uh, treaties and land is handled, basically? Because I've had friends that have moved to British Columbia and been quite surprised by the way that it, basically the, what the current situation is mm-hmm. because of this, um, <clears throat> this history.
1: Yeah, the, I mean, the Douglas Treaties don't really fit in the narrative of Canadian uh, treaties with Indigenous People, and as a result, the Douglas treaties have been largely ignored because no one knows quite what to do with them. Mm. Um, so that the standard narrative begins in the Maritimes uh, in the 18th century with uh, the sort of uh, you know, New France and uh, the American colonies before independence. There were some what they call peace and goodwill treaties entered into with the Indigenous people in uh, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, the Mi'kmaq, and uh, so that uh, those were the earliest ones. They weren't on the face of it to do with ceding land. They were about uh, making arrangements to not... Uh, Uh, harm each other and to encourage trade. Hmm. Um, Although it turns out I think there was an undercurrent, of a struggle for land going on, but it didn't find its way into the the treaties. Uh, Then there were a bunch of uh, treaties in Ontario in the late 18th century after the uh, American War of Independence um, sort of partly uh, opening up land for the uh, loyalists and so forth, and also uh, rewarding some of the First Nations for their participation in the in the battles. And uh, so those treaties were, some of them were uh, making a peaceful coexistence arrangements. Some of them did allocate land, set aside some of their territory for uh, settlement, but uh, the lots of land left over for the First Nations. Um, and so those treaties uh, carpeted Ontario, most of Ontario. Uh, and then after Confederation, um, in the uh, at this time the Hudson's Bay Company still owned the rest of what is known as Canada. It was then called Rupert's Land. Mm-hmm. And so that the uh, colonial government wanted to... Um, make that land available to be added to the newly uh, formed Canada. And the Hudson's Bay Company had undergone a change and was less interested in fur trading than in making money from the land, so uh, the Hudson's Bay Company arranged to sell all of that land to the Canadian government, which then meant it was available for settlements, but until, uh, but first they had to enter into uh, what are called the numbered treaties uh, across uh, western Ontario, uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, and then up into some of the uh, the Northwest Territories. Um, and those are the best known treaties. They cover vast tracts of land, mm. um, and they uh, and there's been dispute about the actual terms of them from uh, the when they were formed in the 1870s and until now, as to whether the first nations actually surrendered all their interest in the land or, or not and uh, what the scope of their hunting and fishing rights were within uh, within that territory so that's the sort of flow of time from east to west uh, but the the douglas treaties kind of happened in the middle on their own as a mm. kind of outliers on the pacific and they're they weren't, uh, didn't involve the uh, colonial government or the Canadian government. They were basically um, uh, delegated to the Hudson's Bay Company as agent to do, mm-hmm. so that uh, they're kind of orphans, and uh, it's therefore one of my tasks is to try and fit them into a bigger picture. In order to do that, uh, I've needed to kind of develop a different structure that where they do fit as opposed to where they don't. Uh, and one of my goals is to kind of recategorize the Canadian treaties mm. instead of just peace and goodwill, uh, trade and, and cession of land. That's extremely colonial, a way of describing them. So having looked at the First Nation understandings through the archival records, I'm hoping to come up with a better terminology that is uh, more useful in terms of understanding what might have actually been the nature of those arrangements.
0: Mm-hmm. So you want to recategorize and talk about a new language when talking about these treaties? Are there larger implications you think about about this kind of research? And I mean, this actually affects people's you know lives and um, and what's going on politically and socially today. Are you thinking about um, possible outcomes from what you're studying here?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and they're potentially uh, huge. Uh, I mean, I'm not alone in this. There have been plenty of uh, people. Uh, questioning the the basis of the the numbered treaties uh, for quite some time. So I'm really following in their footsteps and and, uh, using the approach developed for those treaties in looking with fresh eyes at the Douglas treaties, and it works very well. And uh, so that uh, I'm not denying, you know, that there are treaties, but just sort of saying that there is... uh, An alternate counter narrative of what went on, which has been largely ignored. And that the, uh, I mean, there's a whole history of of legal cases uh, mounted by First Nations to try and sort out what their rights under these treaties are. And they have, to a large extent, uh, been. The decisions have been based on the the official record, the the written documents, and the official correspondence surrounding them. Um, some of the cases, uh, the the plaintiff First Nations have attempted to prove their claims by the use of oral histories and oral traditions, uh, and that has not been very successful because our court system, one of its fundamental principles, is uh, the uh, rules of evidence and what counts as evidence and what should receive weight as evidence and what shouldn't and it's almost impossible for our court system to give full uh, weight to oral traditions they just don't fit within the rules of evidence so that's really not worked out well so my little idea is to uh, seek out the um, First Nation statements that are in the archival record that are hopefully contemporaneous, reports in newspapers and the prairies and so forth. Uh, there were journalists who were writing things down and transcribing some of the speeches of the First Nation participants. Mm. Uh, also, um, First Nations people have long memories, and some of them had long lives, and they lived long enough that their stories of what went on were of interest enough to be uh, in uh, you know, uh, newspaper accounts. So these are much later, but at least they are first-person mm-hmm. accounts so that they don't uh, fall into the problem of being hearsay. They're mm-hmm. actually eyewitness accounts, so they're, they're good evidence. Uh, there just aren't many of them, and they're, they're quite fragmentary. But then one of the things I've been able to show is uh, how partial and fragmentary and, and uh, problematic the official accounts are. So they, they really don't, in my mind, have a great deal of superiority of any mm-hmm. over these First Nation accounts. So that if you... Choose the stories, draw them from the archives, from these interviews and stories and testimony, and deal with the obvious problems that they have, you still end up with something that's very powerful and very convincing. And that, uh, getting back to the long-term implications, um, I think that what I'm hoping to achieve is that these accounts will at least be given an equal weight to the colonial versions uh, I'm not saying they are the correct version, but at least uh, no one can, uh, I hope, rely solely on the colonial account, that uh, people will know there's another version out there, and then they can choose, uh, uh, make up their own mind as to what they believe. Mm. And the, the implications are certainly to, um, uh, I think, if the rest of Canada, the non Indigenous part of Canada has a a greater understanding of what the the, uh, First Nations understood that they agreed to, then it may influence their attitudes towards negotiating uh, modern treaties or renegotiating old ones, that there is a a a real good reason uh, to do so and that there's a very good reason for First Nations to still be complaining these many years later because uh, uh, they seem to have a very good basis to do so and that it's time for the rest of us to acknowledge that and to negotiate with them as equals. Um, So that, uh, I mean, part of what I'm doing, I think, is to help in the Idle No More movement because a lot of that uh, is to do with First Nations uh, wanting their treaty rights to be implemented, but most Canadians don't know what those are, so that I'm hoping to help bring the First Nations point of view forward so that the the, uh, Canadians will um, basically make good decisions based on that knowledge that they don't presently have. Um, So I'm not trying to destabilize everything. Uh, And and it's certainly not about uh, threatening people's homes and their, their title to their land. It's really an acknowledgement that uh, our old understanding is probably uh, very imperfect and that we need to take into account these other points of view and come up with something that works for both sides.
0: Hmm. I can see we're out of time. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's gone by very quickly today. Um, thank you so much for coming in and talking about your research.
1: I'm always glad to do that. I intend to do it more.
0: (laughs) And how how long will you be, uh, will it be, uh, sorry, how long do you have left completing your PhD? (laughs)
1: Um, I'm hoping to uh, have my uh, draft done in, um, it's a bit of a movable target, but Mm -hmm. uh, maybe June. And hope to defend in maybe September, October, something like that, and convocate in June. the spring of 2015 on the 50th anniversary of my first association with UVic.
0: Well, good luck and congratulations on getting this far. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you want to listen again, visit our website, cfuv.uvic.ca. The music you heard today is from Solar Mass Collective, Volume 2, the song B.O.C. by Kimchi Kitty.